Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hey, good morning, church family. We've been working through a special sermon series called Atomic Spiritual Habits. And it's based on this book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. And Clear's premise is that habits are like atoms in two ways. One, habits can be, and usually are, uh, incredibly small. They're even imperceptible to us sometimes as we live our daily lives. That's why they're habits. We just do them. On the other hand, um, like atoms, habits are incredibly powerful. If you crush an atom, you have an atomic explosion. In, this, in a similar way, if we give attention to these small habits over the course of a lifetime and develop thoughtful systems about how, the, how we employ them, Clear's premise is that we'll see eventually even exponential type change in our lives. When we think about atomic spiritual habits, we're borrowing from this principle, and we're looking at the significance of uh, spiritual formation and habit formation for the Christian life. And today we're thinking especially about how to stop a bad habit. This is the area of Christian growth, or what theologians call sanctification, uh, traditionally called the mortification of sin. Mortify, meaning to kill or to put to death, and sin, meaning those acts that flow uh, from a rebellious heart that lead to actual rebellious acts against God. There are some bad habits that are bad spiritual habits. That is, they are either things that are permissible but not beneficial, or they are things that are outright sinful. For example, it's permissible to play video games, but it's not beneficial to play them 12 hours a day every day. Uh, Netflix is permissible, but probably if you're averaging four to six hours a day, there's a pretty big opportunity cost with watching that much television. So we have these two categories, permissible, but not beneficial, and then sinful. And we're going to look at both of those today as we think about uh, how to stop uh, spiritual bad habits or patterns of sin. Clear's book is helpful because when we think about the Christian life, we should remember that we're whole people, body and soul in this life. Our souls are united to our bodies. There's a union between our hearts, our minds, and our wills. And today, in the Evangelical and Reformed Church, we often give a lot of attention to the heart and to desires, and we should. The beauty of the gospel is that God takes our hearts of stone, and he changes them into a heart of flesh. God takes us when we were dead in trespasses and sins, and he makes us alive in union with Jesus Christ, as his Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. We are literally made new creations in Jesus. We get a new heart and a new set of desires. If we don't first experience God's love, we're not going to be able to love him. And it's right that we pay attention to our desires because they drive us and they are powerful. We should seek to cultivate them 
uh, by looking to Jesus every day, by reading his word, fellowshipping with Christians, joining corporate worship, attending midweek, uh, midday prayer throughout the week as we have at Exilic every day at noon. These are all ways that we look to Jesus and that we nurture faith and curate and cultivate more godly desires as we draw upon God's love for us so we in turn love the Lord. So that's all right, and that's all appropriate. But sometimes we can neglect uh, that our wills also have a role to play. We can neglect what exists in the New Testament scriptures as something that theologians and biblical scholars call the indicative imperative relationship. That is the indicative what God declares about us to be so by his grace in Jesus, and the imperative how he tells us to act in response to that grace and new life that we have in Jesus Christ. So in this sermon series, we've been focusing especially on the imperative side or on the side of our will as it relates to being made new in Jesus Christ. When we think about stopping a bad habit, this morning we're settling down in a passage in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians probably in Rome, possibly also in Alexandria. It's been a debate for years among biblical scholars exactly uh, what the provenance of this book is. But the book of Hebrews is written to Christians in the early church who were facing a temptation to revert back to Jewish forms of worship. It was culturally acceptable, and it was legally acceptable as well. And the book of Hebrews is written to encourage these believers of two realities. One, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised in the Old Covenant Scriptures. So don't return to those patterns in those ways but keep focused on Jesus. And two, therefore, because that is true, to persevere in the Christian life and to know that in so doing, you have a great reward awaiting you in the life to come. So we settle down within that broader context in the Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And in this passage, we think about how it is that we can put off bad spiritual habits or put to death sin in our lives there are three things that we see here. The first is to remember who we are. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12:1, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does he mean by this? Well, in the previous chapter, he's gone through the great Old Testament saints of the past. Saints like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Rahab. And he notes that God granted them faith. And that they, together with us, have an eternal inheritance and a future that awaits, a future that's yet to be realized. This chapter, chapter 11, is sometimes called the Hall of Faith chapter. So in these verses, Paul is looking back on that chapter, and he says that for us, as those who know Jesus today, these great Old Testament saints are not simply distant historical figures. He says they're like a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The image that we should have in our mind is, is of the Roman Colosseum itself and us being down uh, on the field at the center. And all the saints of the past, and for us that would include not only the Old Testament saints, but Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones. These saints of the past, now in heaven, Spiritually, we're in union with them. And the picture here is that we're literally being cheered on by the saints. There's a 
powerful image of this in the book of Revelation, where we see in Revelation chapter 6, the saints in heaven praying for the kingdom to come to benefit those who are suffering on the earth. Well, this is all part of remembering who we are. You know, when you think about stopping a bad habit or dealing with a, a pattern of sin in your life, it doesn't begin the way you think, at least not according to Scripture, it doesn't. We often think it begins with ourselves. More self-discipline, uh, more rigorous determination, a heightened sense of shame or guilt or obligation. Actually, it's the opposite in the New Testament Scriptures. And Clear says it's also the opposite according to psychological research. The beginning of change is to start thinking about yourself, uh, not in terms of your sin, but in terms of who you are in Jesus Christ, in terms of your membership in the family of God. And so you're not fundamentally a sex addict. You're not fundamentally a fat person. You're not fundamentally someone who struggles with alcohol or drugs. Fundamentally, the scripture says that you're a saint, a holy one. Why? Because you've been made new in Jesus Christ. Your Father in heaven looks upon you as perfect and holy. That's what saint means, one who's been set apart to be holy. But it's not some special category reserved for the superheroes of the Christian faith. No, a saint is anyone who's been brought into union with Jesus. Anyone who's uh, sin has been laid upon Jesus and in turn his righteousness given to them. So the key is actually to begin thinking about ourselves in the right way. There's so much shame and guilt associated with uh, bad habits and uh, patterns of sin. that This is perhaps easier said than done, but it's where we begin. So start with recognizing you're a saint. You're a child of God. You're an heir. You're a brother or sister of Jesus Christ himself. You have a future destiny, a future inheritance laid up for you in heaven. And you share in a fellowship with the entire church from uh, the Old Testament saints uh, through to the early church, all throughout church history. This is who you are. This is where you're going. Away with shame and guilt. Live as one who is loved and perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. So that's part of what we see whenever the writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's calling us to remember this fundamental identity. He's calling us away from this idea that we're to be defined by whatever shameful habit or pattern of sin we're seeking to uh, remove from our lives. The second thing we see here is that we are to lay sin aside. Look at what the writer of the Hebrews says. And then again, this gets to that indicative imperative relationship. We're made uh, in union with Jesus and we have this cloud of witnesses. So therefore, this is the imperative part, we are to lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely. To lay aside sin, what should our attitude toward a sinful spiritual habit be? You know, sometimes we can start to think that this is just inevitable. These habits seem to have traction in our lives. It's inevitable that we would watch that material on YouTube. It's inevitable that we would you know, drink that alcohol or take that substance or eat those extra desserts to cope with anxiety that we're feeling at the time. But what we should remember is that 
By being made new in Jesus Christ, not only are we righteous, but we're also free. Part of the reason that sin clings so closely is that we can be deceived into thinking that it is inevitable that we commit it. We can forget our freedom uh, from it. And we indeed are free to lay it aside. I love this language that Paul uses because it's so very practical. And it also uh, points in a direction that Clear mentions in his book, Atomic Habits, when he talks about how to stop a bad habit. What does this mean to lay sin aside very practically? Well, Christians in the past have taken a very concrete attitude toward defeating sin. And what I mean by that is to take actions that are um, just very commonsensical in dealing with sin. And it's fascinating, I commend Clear's book too, that he, he picks up on the, the power of some of these same strategies, these are strategies that have been employed in, in Christians and emphasized in, in times past as well. For example, um, if you're struggling with gaming, something that we mentioned before, what you might do is literally lay aside the gaming console. Uh, after you play, uh, you know, spend an hour gaming, literally put the console into the closet and let it sit there. You see, if you take it out of your pathway, you're less likely to be tempted to do it. On the other side of that, you're also going to have to put forth the effort to get it out of the closet and set it back up to game again. Another practical illustration that Clear used in his book that was interesting said that athletes who are trying to make weight will sometimes uh, take all the money out of their wallet and all of their credit cards so that when they're out about town uh, or, or doing their, their um, errands, they don't have any money to buy fast food, putting friction in between them and a bad habit. Other things that we can do is we can demystify our habits. We need to understand that some of the things that we're doing, we're doing for uh, deep needs, and uh, we can demystify them by thinking through what's actually happening uh, and why we're doing the thing that we're doing. I once was counseling a man who was struggling with pornography. And he began to describe to me uh, the situations in which he found himself yielding to this particular sin. For him, it wasn't initially born out of lust. It was born out of anxiety. Um, uh, anxiety and, 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 and the need for uh, relief from uncertainty about the future. So one of the things that we talked about was to study his life and study the types of situations in which he would feel that anxiety encroaching upon him and see what he could do to avoid getting into those situations to begin with. Or if he saw them coming, to go ahead and start doing things other than pursuing the uh, viewing of pornography to deal with that particular anxiety. Things like going for a run, talking to a friend, um, praying with his wife, or reading scripture. He reported back to me that there was incredible um, freedom in pursuing these very practical strategies. But how did that all happen for him? It happened by getting past the shame and the guilt of the sin itself, analyzing what was happening in his life, recognizing that he had a legitimate need for peace, but the way to get that peace was not to pursue viewing pornography, but to pursue God in place of that and to pursue the righteous means of relieving that anxiety that God had given to him. We can go on and on with examples like this. 
But the point is, when it comes to dealing with uh, bad habits, we need to take concrete actions. We need to analyze the motives of our heart. We need to think through a system that we can use to approach the problem rather than just assuming that if we cultivate our desires, everything else is going to take care of itself. I think of one more example. A man who I counseled who struggled with alcoholism. It was an intense and prolonged struggle. It ended with him going to um, a rehab facility, and that was a blessed effort. Uh, today, he no longer struggles with alcohol the way he once did. He is largely free from that addiction. But in the course of uh, the daily battle of dealing with alcoholism, one of the things that we decided in, in discussing his struggle with him was to simply change the way that he was driving home from work. His normal route home took him past a liquor store. And as soon as he would see that store on the horizon on his drive, he would sort of almost immediately go into a default mode of driving in the parking lot, going and buying some alcohol and consuming it um, in his driveway at home before he even went into the house. Whatever your particular spiritual struggle is, first of all, remember who you are. And in remembering who you are, know that you're free from the power of that sin. You're free from the guilt of that sin. You're not defined by that sin. It sounds really almost too good to be true, but it is true. And that's why it's called the good news of the Christian gospel. And having remembered who you are, give close analysis to why you're doing what you're doing. And then from there, think about a very practical strategy and little small steps you can take to avert that pattern in your life. The last thing that we're reminded of in this passage is that all of this happens from the fundamental posture of looking to Jesus in verse 2. Jesus is the one that is the founder and perfecter of our faith. How are we going to experience and feel in our own souls that we are made new in Jesus Christ and surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses? That we have a future and a destiny ahead of us? How are we going to feel that? Well, it's going to come by a life of faith. And the good news for us is that even this faith is a gift. And that when we look to Jesus, Jesus nurtures our faith. And when we look to Jesus, he reminds us of his love for us. It's a beautiful passage. It says, The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does this mean? For the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Was it a joy for Jesus to go and bear the wrath of God? Was that the joy? That was anguish. He dreaded bearing the wrath of God. He knew what it would feel like. He had an idea of what that would be like, and he, he pled for the Lord if there was any other way to take it from him. Now, that was not the joy. The cross itself was not the joy. You're the joy. The joy for Jesus is knowing that by going to that cross, he's securing uh, forgiveness and blamelessness for you. And blamelessness is key. What's the opposite of blame? Excuse me, what's the opposite of, of blameless? It's shameful. Or to be blamed is to be shamed. When it says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross, what does that mean? 
What that means is that he knew the cross would be a shameful place where he would be stripped down naked, where he would be beheld crucified by onlookers who would mock him. And we're worse than all of that. The wrath of God itself would be poured out upon him. The cross is shame-filled, shame-consumed for Jesus. But Jesus goes there anyway. He despises that it's a place of shame, and he goes to the cross anyway. Why? To remove shame from you. Because before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for you, to bear his wrath in your place so that your shame and your guilt could be removed. See, it's scandalous, isn't it, when we define ourselves by our sinful, bad habits rather than defining ourselves as God defines us, as righteous and blameless in Jesus Christ. This is the very reason why Jesus went to the cross to remove your shame. And then we see that uh, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the cross could not defeat, uh, death could not keep Jesus down. Having died on that cross, he was buried for three days, and then he rose from the dead. Then he dwelled for 40 days with the disciples, which time he was ascended. And now he reigns over all things on behalf of the church. He's seated at the right hand of God. This is a, a, a way of saying that Jesus is literally God's right-hand man over the whole universe. This is the Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. When we think about Jesus reigning on the throne of God, how does that relate to our bad habits? What's the connection there? Well, the connection is this. Jesus has made you, uh, God has made you alive in Jesus Christ. God has given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God has a plan for you to serve Jesus Christ. There are good works, good things that God wants to do out of your life. Not because if you do them, he'll accept you, just the opposite. He's accepted you so that in freedom and joy and love for him, you can do these things, that you can find joy in serving him. And you see the bad habits, uh, the sinful patterns, they just clutter that all up, don't they? We put aside those things so that we can put on Jesus and live out of him and do the works that God has for us. And in so doing, Jesus himself exercises his reign over all the earth through us. Habits are powerful. Indeed, they are atomic. They're small, but they have great results when you pay attention over time. As you think about what Jesus Christ did for you, always remember that in him you are free. In him, you have a great future. And in him, you too can put off the sin that so easily entangles. You can lay it aside and you can run with endurance the race that is set before you. You know what's interesting about that phrase? It doesn't say to run the sprint. It says to run the race and to run it with endurance. An endurance race is something that uh, we we give careful attention to our pace along and along. A sprint is where we just strive for the goal right away, 100% all the time. The endurance runner has to watch the time of every mile, maybe even every half mile, to make sure he's pacing himself for the victory. 
the sprinter just all out gives what they have right away without thought of the pace. Why this endurance metaphor? Well, one of the things it's, it's reminding us to do is this, to pay careful attention to these small habits, forming good ones, putting away, laying aside bad ones. And to do that over time, confident that if we do, we'll see the Lord Jesus work out great things in our lives, serving him as he reigns over all things. Amen. And let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you've made us righteous and blameless in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would encourage us with that word and that knowledge and that hope. And Lord, give us wisdom and insight into our own hearts that we may discern why we do what we do and give us practical ways to lay aside the sin that that's, uh, clings so closely, Lord, in order to walk with you in freedom and joy for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.